Oh, boy. I, I, I hear that song, and it reminds me of the whole album, and the whole album just reminds me of high school. <laughs> Between that and Judgment Night, <clears throat> someone were to say to me, musically, sum up, sum up your high school experience. Uh, I wouldn't even have to crack open my computer and start pulling tracks for a mix. I just have to hand them a copy of The Crow. All right. You are listening to the flagship show of the Rattledgeon Broadcasting Network, The Long Road to Ruin. I am your host, the Mandator Reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And tonight, we are discussing a love letter to the 90s and goth culture at large before it became all uh, burned down the hot topic, The Crow. Poor Brandon Lee. Rest in peace, brother. And tonight with me, as always, is my co-host, wordsmith in his own right, uh, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Ladies and gentlemen, as always, Long Road to Ruin comes to you tonight free of commercial interruptions, brought to you by Vandalay Industries and Nick Diaz Cat Jitsu. Please call 209-634-5789 today for your free week of introductory lessons. And as always, I am coming to you this evening live from the Sean Cave in an undisclosed location of Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm also coming to you after a very, very weird week of geeky media obsessions. Just, you know, I, I really swear, I sometimes wish that we could live stream our pre-show conversations just so we could make very clear the strange places my mind goes to before I have to sit here for 90 minutes to two hours and just keep straight thoughts in my head about one movie. All right. Tonight, prior to this show, um, I managed to stop talking about how in love I am with uh, the entire Bioshock trilogy, as I have been all over Facebook all week, uh, to talk about Tara Reed's newly deformed, deteriorating body, and <laughs> with uh, with with Mark's wife, that is, this isn't exactly the kind of thing that Mark and I sit and dish over over international delights and bonbons. Oh no, and, you should have heard less nice casual heroes. <laughs> and then and then we managed to segue from there into my talking about how. In my opinion, it is just the most fantastic thing in the world that when some Canadian production company decided to make uh, a syndicated television series based on uh, based on the crow expanding upon the original story, that to replace Brandon Lee, they got the chairman of Kitchen Stadium on Iron Chef America. I mean, he obviously wasn't that back wasn't that back then. But now every time I every time I watch the crow now, I can't help it. I, again, just my mind going to weird places. Every time they get to the part where he finally tracks down uh T Bird and Skank, I keep wanting him to strike up to just strike this jet leader chow yun fat kung fu pose right when he sees T Bird and just yell out Okay, I'm sure we'll hear more about this as the show goes on, but I want to introduce our special guest tonight before we lose him for a third time. Um, Because God help us, 
between Skype and Blog Talk Radio, I'm starting to think we should start putting these podcasts together with string and Dixie cups. Ladies and gentlemen, I told you. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, our title card artist and uh, creator of SoulXO.com. Uh, you can check out his webcomic and, uh, and, and all of his other art. Mr. Benjamin J. Cologne. And brother, my wife thanks you once again for sending us those pictures uh, for Christmas time. Thank you very much. Welcome to the show, sir. Good evening, everybody. Am I coming through clearly? Clear as glass, Chief. Good. You're, you're, coming, you're, you're coming through as clearly as anybody is going to on Blog Talk Radio. I repeat, burn in hell, Skype, and Blog Talk in that order. Uh, see, Mark, what the hell did I tell you pre-show? I said almost my exact word. Blog Talk Radio is like the petulant, stubborn Charizard of broadcast platforms. If we get ten minutes into the show and Blog Talk Radio just decides it's had enough bar fuckery, then we're done. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, it, I keep wanting to use their direct call thing so I don't have to call them through Skype. And and for whatever reason, it doesn't jive real well, and I end up not sounding as clear, so I call in through Skype. I don't have any problem with Skype. I mean, maybe once in a while I'll get dumped once, and then I'll call back again, and I won't have any problems. When we record the Casual Heroes podcast, typically I don't have any problems with Skype on my end. Uh, unfortunately, Benjamin came to the club that is the long road to ruin through the Skype door, and there was a large man outside the door that said, ye shall not pass. So... Benjamin now has to sit on the top of his apartment building in the rain, in the thunder, with the lightning, and talk to us because, as we all know, there's no cell reception in New York City. The buildings are too high. Isn't that so, sir? Yes, I'm I'm standing on top of a tall ship mast like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump yelling into the void. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Poor Benjamin said, I'm trying to call through Skype vainly. And I said, well, what what, uh, what other options are you guys? Like, well, I can call on my cell phone, but I was trying not to do that, as I might as well just yell out my window. You'll hear me a lot clearer. And I said, well, whatever gets this done. Now, we are talking about The Crow tonight. And as I said, it was a love letter to the 90s, the music, the look, the whole nine yards. Before before uh, start, people started confusing Doth with Corn and Rob Zombie, hi, Rachel, um, they, you know, there, there was a pre-Goth culture that this was sort of a, a love letter too in, in terms of style. Um, and certainly The Crow was well received by critics. Uh, it's it's also a very um, dramatic movie in the sense that the lead actor accidentally, in, in a host of errors, dies on set during one of the stunts. So we're going to talk about all that, and then we're going to talk about uh, the second movie, uh, City of Angels. And then that's all we're going to do for tonight because I do want to spend a while talking about the first movie because it deserves the most attention. And then in two weeks, we'll be back on our Thursday date and we'll do the last two movies just because I feel like it needs two hours to make fun of Tara Reid and Sharknado. In any case, Benjamin, um, let me go to you first, and then we'll go to Sean with uh, his introductory notes of production. Um, you, uh, when, when I announced that we were doing this uh, series of movies, um, you uh you, you came to my house, you kicked open my door, you took one of my children hostage and you said and you pointed a gun at my head and you said, I demand, sir, I demand to be allowed onto this production and said, Really you're being over dramatic. You could have just asked. And so you did. <laughs> you you asked to be a part of the show. We we have given you the platform. 
what what what's it all about? Why, why the crow? What do you what do you want about? Um, the crow for a couple of reasons. Uh, for a couple of reasons, um, it's uh, you know like like everybody that grew up in the '90s, uh, you know, in that particular period of time, the crow was a big deal when the movie came out. I actually, um, you know, being a comic book guy, I I had, uh, sort of read parts of the of the comic. Um, around the same time as the movie. Uh, I was always a big fan of both. Um, I actually didn't read the comic uh, in full until quite a bit later. But, uh, you know, The Crow, uh, as both a comic and a movie, I think speaks to a lot of people, uh, not just for, for the, you know, the gothy, culture sort of things, but because um, it's also... It's it's a story that deals a lot with with loss and and with uh, with uh, dealing with tragedy and um, you know I I I don't want to get too incredibly incredibly personal about what uh, you know what the comic and what the movie means to me but um, the first time I actually read the the comic from cover to cover uh, happened to be the same day that you know I actually had suffered a loss in my uh in my own life. I lost somebody close to me. So it's it's uh it's personal to me in that way. Uh the movie has always been like, you know, ever since the first time I saw it, that's like easily one of my favorite movies of all time. It's it's like top three and on, you know, depending on what day you catch me it may be like top two. Um and just uh you know i never get tired of watching uh, the the original movie is the only movie that i did not take notes for for this podcast because i've seen it so many times that i pretty much have it memorized so very good i uh, i i too um i didn't read the com- i didn't even know it was a comic book until after the movie came out but i remember because of the crow it inspired um, a lot of a lot of my friends who are actually younger than I am um, to go back and read The Crow, read The Sandman, and they became really into that genre, uh, subgenre of comic books. But uh, I remember when The Crow came out, and I was a senior in high school at the time. Uh, we all loved the movie, loved Brandon Lee, uh, loved the music in it. It was just, it was really, it's as come, it's as close to a perfect movie in terms of enjoyment. Um, especially at that part, in that part of my life, as you could get, so uh, it, it, it deserves praise. And you know, in, in rewatching it, uh, I, I honestly don't have a whole lot of uh, criticism in terms of craft. You know, we'll get into the nitty gritty as it goes as we go on. But it's um, for you know, for for all intents and purposes, a uh, an off the radar, um, under the radar kind of movie. It, it hit it out of the ballpark. Now, Sean, how did uh, why don't you uh, lead the discussion here in terms of uh, your notes and uh, where, where do you want to begin here with the crow? Well, before we get into that, just a couple of quick things. First and foremost, fair warning here: if you have never seen the original, very first movie in this quadrilogy, go away, shoot, shut stream off right now. Don't listen to it. Go and watch the first one. It's available on Netflix, and chances are you can actually probably get it on DVD or Blu-ray most places fairly cheap. I say that because it is 
absolutely superb. It isn't just one of the greatest comic-based movies of all time. It's rightfully one of probably the better action movies and even just one of the better movies in general made of all time with a beautiful, poignant story that, as I'll discuss at length in just a little bit, manages to accomplish something almost ingeniously duplicitous that no movie before it or since really has quite as effectively. So, go. Before the spoilers start, get out of here and go watch the movie. You won't regret it. Number two, something we have to every so often point out about movies we cover on this show. Look, yes, the show is called Long Road to Ruin. Yes, we're going to be talking about some pretty damn bad movies over the course of the next two episodes. The first one is not one of them. I might make a couple jokes here and there. I might, I might crack wise a little bit. But all things considered, I was looking forward to this because it genuinely is one of my all-time favorite movies from top to bottom. So keep in mind, we're going to be taking, a, taking the piss out of a lot of the franchise, but don't get angry if we decide to maybe snicker a little bit here and there at a few parts of the original. That being said... On to the actual story of the movie, which is really, actually, in terms of production, just about as interesting as the story it draws from itself. The story comes from James O'Barr's 1999 comic book, which he wrote as a means of progressing the grieving process as he recovered from the, lo- from the loss of his, own gr- of his own girlfriend to a drunk driving accident. In a sense, the whole movie is somewhat of a requiem both to her and the part of himself that inevitably died during the grieving process. Now, let's get this part out of the way because there's just no way you can talk about The Crow without discussing it. It's best known for the fact that it was miraculously, ingeniously, and inventively finished despite the loss of budding, brilliant star Brandon Lee before production was completely finished. And really, as I researched this movie, I knew roughly how he had died. I knew that it was an onset mishap with a prop firearm. I had no idea just how tragic, unfortunate, and ultimately preventable the incident really was. And I'm going to go ahead and point this out not for the sake of being morbid, but just in case somebody wants to go back through and maybe pay extra attention. Because while the actual footage itself is not used, the scene that ultimately led to his demise is still in the movie. It happened during happened during a scene which appeared later in later on in a flashback during about the first act of the movie, in which actor Michael Massey Michael Massey had to fire a gun at at uh, Brandon Lee, playing lead character Eric Draven, with a 44 Magnum Smith & Wesson Model 629. Now, what happened here was a mix-up that, invo- that involved cross-wires between the two types of cartridges that had to be used, and quite frankly, some sloppy irresponsible work by the budget-minded production crew. You see, for close-up scenes, the crew loaded the revolver with what are known as 
dummy rounds, which have no powder or primer but are fitted with bullets. They look more like real cartridges when they're visible. For the other scenes, when they actually had, for other scenes that were a little bit further away than a close-up, they loaded them with obviously blank rounds, which have no bullet in them. However, unfortunately, during production, the prop crew was hampered by both time and budget constraints, and so they decided to make their own dummy rounds by removing the bullets from live rounds, removing the powder charge, and then reinserting the bullets. Unfortunately, whoever was working on this either forgot to remove the percussion primer or just didn't think to do it at all. During filming at one point, the revolver fired, and when it did, it got one of, it got one of the improperly deactivated charges bullets stuck partway into the chamber. Unfortunately, this also went unnoticed. During the later shot, in which, in which as we said, Massey had to fire Brandon Lee from about 12 to 15 feet away, blank rounds had been subbed in for the dummy cartridges. Now, dumb, now, blank rounds have a live powder charge and primer, but no bullet, because usually there's supposed to be no risk of firing a projectile. The on-set firearm specialist had gone home early, and so the gun hadn't really been properly checked before the scene began. Therefore, nobody caught the obstruction in the barrel. What ended up happening was the dummy round bullet that had been trapped in the barrel was discharged when the 44 Magnum's blank fired and it went and it struck Lee in the abdomen. They rushed him to New Hanover Regional Medical Center in Wilmington, North Carolina immediately, but unfortunately after six hours of, sur of surgery, Lee was pronounced dead on March 31st, 1993, at the age of 28. In the wake of that, production basically shut down and the film looked to be actually itself nearly dead. Um, uh, Sophie, Sophia Sheenas, who played, who played Eric Draven's fiance Shelley Webster, didn't want to continue production and instead went home to Los Angeles, as did the rest of the cat. The rest of the cast and crew stayed behind, except for, and this just exemplifies that you can't go anywhere in this whole intellectual property without encountering death, sudden death and loss. Ernie Hudson, whose brother-in-law had just died, and so he stayed behind in Wilmington. And initially, Paramount was... Paramount backed off of wanting to release the film theatrically as opposed to going to direct video, as it had planned, planned way before. Um, they were also very iffy about the violent content being considered to be inappropriate given the fact that Lee had died during production. At more or less the 11th hour, Miramax, in one of the studio's finer moments, stepped up planned to release it in theaters, and in fact fronted an additional $8 million in order to complete the budget. On a budget of ultimately $23 million, and after a, and after a break to accomplish script re rewrites for uncompleted flashback scenes, 
some special effects work to insert Lee's face over that of over that of a body double used to shoot his remaining scenes, and also the addition of some narration in new scenes. The film was ult- the film was ultimately released on May 13, 1994, and on a budget of 23 million dollars, grossed 50.7 million dollars to pretty much unanimous critical acclaim worldwide, complete with a dedication both to Lee and his. Oh, help me out here. It was either his, either his fiance or his wife. I forget which it was, um, but I know it was one of the two. But ultimately, as we're going to find out as we go through the series, whereas the first movie was gorgeous, poignant, and thoughtful in an understated way that sadly flies under the radar for the movie that launched a million hot topics by people missing the point entirely, it really is absolutely a stunning, absolutely remarkable bit of bit of art that features superb performances by the likes of Brandon Lee as Eric Draven, Ernie Hudson, Ernie Hudson as Detective... God, I'm blanking on the detective's name. Albrecht. Detective's name. Albrecht, thank you. I'm sorry. As Detective Al- Albrecht, Michael Wincott as top, as top dollar, and I believe, um, I believe Massey played T-Bird, or not T-Bird, um, no, it was T-Bird, wasn't it? Michael Massey plays Fun Boy, David Patrick Kelly plays T-Bird. Okay, yes, I'm sorry, I got them mixed up in my notes, <laughs> apologies, um, but again, as we're about as we're about to see, it's an example of what happens when everything comes together in just the right way, including knowing just which things change in adaptation. That was great, Sean. Uh, thank you for that introduction. We'll get into some of the final points of that in just a moment, but I want to quick go through the plot of this. It was recently um, it was talked about on an episode of Movie Fights where a question was asked, what is the best revenge movie? And that is, uh, if you had to sum this up in one word, what is this movie about? That, that's one word you could go with very strongly. Uh, ostensibly, uh, a, a gang you know, sent henceforth by uh, the big boss in the movie is sent to the home of Eric Draven and his fiance the night before Halloween, Devil's Night, which is a night where uh, roving gangs of hooligans burn shit to the ground in in Detroit. And uh, they're supposed to get married the next day on Halloween. They've, they've made a ruckus. They've caught the ire of the villains. And so the villains have come to teach them a lesson. And that lesson is you have to die. So they beat and rape the wife and uh, the, the fiance and leave her for dead. Um, she ends up dying in sur- uh, surgery 30 hours later. Uh, poor Eric Draven, on the other hand, gets shot and takes a, takes a uh, drop out of a window from their apartment. Now, the premise of the movie uh, going forward is that uh, you know, some souls uh, need some souls need avenging, that they cannot be properly laid to rest until they have until they have righted the wrong that put them in the ground in the first place. So one year later, a crow goes to the grave of Eric Draven 
And I'm sorry. I, we, we, like I said, I want to echo Sean's point of view on this and that it is a great movie and it doesn't deserve to be made fun of, but there are times I can't help myself. And the scene in which he rises out of the grave, all I hear is Sam Kennison talking about Jesus Christ going, that, <laughs> that guy just came out of his box. So the whole time, so the whole time he's he, he's rising out of the grave, a la you know, a la zombie. Oh, I hear Sam Kinison's narration. That guy just got it, just came out of his box. But he does. Um, he is resurrected, and yeah, he learns uh, over a few sequences that he can see through the eyes of the crow, and he is guided by the crow on a mission of revenge to take out the crew that took out him and his fiance. Uh, along the way, he's reunited with with the little girl that they were taking care of, whose mother is a morphine addict and the girlfriend of one of the attackers. And from that point, it, it's pretty straightforward. He, over the course of the movie, reclaims a bit of his humanity little by little, and little by little he starts to remember what's what's happened to him. And he's an avenging angel at this point. Um, he goes one, one by one, he, he kills uh, the group of people that went after him and the fiancé. And through them, he is guided to the big boss. There's a final fight scene. And uh, wrong is righted. Uh, evil is defeated. And he returns to the grave, um, having having uh, avenged and, uh, and righted things. His soul can now lay at rest. That, and that's the movie. It, it's, it's not overly complicated stuff here. What makes the movie interesting, uh, and one of the things that was talked about on movie fights was that one that, that part of what's driving him was the love that he had for this woman that she had no, you know no right to be treated the way that she was, uh, and that's part of what's driving him is that he never he never really says and Benjamin I kind of want your opinion on this um, your, some of your thoughts throughout the movie it's always about Shelley what you did to Shelley. It's never what you did to me. He, he is sort of removed from the equation. It's I am here on behalf of the one that I love and what you did to her. And, and it's funny because the reactions that he gets from, from, the, from, the, from the crew, uh, like, oh, yeah, I remember her, and they, and they start to say something snarky and evil, and then they meet their demise. But he is almost divorced from the proceedings, you know, in terms of they threw this fucker out a window, and he ain't the least bit mad about it. He's, he's more concerned with with her soul being uh, being at rest and she, and her being avenged. Um, we'll start there. What did you What did you think of that as sort of a motivating factor for this character and uh, and how it's and and um, how it moves the action forward? Um, okay, uh, it was never presented. It was never stated straightforward. This is another thing that this movie does very well, which is it does a lot of showing as opposed to telling, and it gets a lot of uh, expository things out of the way without having to stop and bring a movie to a screeching halt and explain it to the audience. Um, so, and, and a lot of that is, is I, and, and I know all three of us are going to be singing Brandon Lee's praises for the duration of the time we're going to be talking about this movie, and it's well-deserved. And you get a lot of uh, you get a lot of what uh, you, you get a lot of character motivation and and a lot of what Eric is going through and what he's feeling just through the way Brandon Lee plays the character. Um, I always I got the sense that 
he comes to understand really quickly what's happened to him, maybe in a broad sense, but he it seems as though he understands, okay, um, I know what happened. Uh, you know, I, I must have something, you know, something happened, something horrible happened, and now this woman who I love very much, I'm separated from her. And that seems like that's the driving force. Actually, he's trying to get back to her. And the only way he understands to do that is to avenge her. Um, so that's that's what he sets out to do. And it's, you know, if I have to, you know, I'm going to kill my way back to you, basically, is, is what I always got from that. Um, one of the things I liked about it was that he, had, he just doesn't go after the crew. It is that he... This could have easily been turned into, you know, a, a monster movie where, you know, a monster is... I mean, <laughs> take the love out of it and take the fact that we're focusing on Brandon Lee. He he, so he could have been a horror monster, you know, and, and, these are five, and these are five people that he kills over the course of the movie. But he, he also takes time to deal with sort of an ancillary character, which is the, uh, the, the, the pawnbroker. <laughs> There's got some pretty funny lines in the movie. Um, and so he, and so you, he's not only just uh, immortal as long as the crow stays alive, but you know he also uh, has these sort of intangible powers. You know, like he he holds these different engagement rings, and uh, he starts to feel things. And he says to him, he's like, each one of these is a life that you help take away. And so even though he had nothing directly to do with what happened to Eric Draven and Shelley Webster, um, he still played a role, and so he is punished. Uh, there's a scene later on in the movie, and Sean will bring you in on this, where well, when he goes after Fun Boy, um, we also you know see that uh, Sarah's mother, Darla, uh, Darla, I believe her name is, um, you know, is all strung out and ignoring her daughter and all that, which is why she's why she was being taken care of by Shelley and Eric. Um, you know, he instead of throwing her out a window or whatever, he takes a moment. And he grabs her, and the morphine comes out of her arm. And in one night, she she is redeemed, uh, or at least attempts to be redeemed. You know, the next morning she's cooking breakfast, and she's trying to make amends with her daughter. So they were very, very careful to give him um, scenes like that, so as not to make him Freddy. You know, so as not to make him Jason. Just carving up people one scene after another. Not to mention the fact that it would have made for kind of a boring movie. Um, he is, I think, at his core, the, the crow, a decent entity, you know, who knows right from wrong, and it is, this, isn't, this isn't just about murdering people. What did you think of that, Sean? Well, to be honest, I really think there's a little bit more to the movie than what you kind of just described. And to really look at that, I sort of have to go a little bit scholarly on everybody here. What it really is, is it's a monomyth that's told through a bit of an urban gothic lens. I'll go piece by piece. For those of you who aren't familiar, the monomyth is a concept that's most popularly associated with author, philosopher, thinker, etc., Joseph Campbell. Essentially, it's the idea that there are, when you really boil it down, very few original stories in all of human history. We've really been telling the same tale for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And in a sense, as we move along, and as I'll try to break down a little bit later, 
that's what the crow really is. It's a monomyth in every sense, including the one that when it comes to the grieving process and really learning to assess and appreciate everything that means anything in life, it really is an indispensable and common part of the human experience. It's just that in this case, it's being told in somewhat of a skewed, slightly stylized way through just one man's eyes. And through those eyes, it becomes an example of what's known as urban gothic. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, for anything more than it being the name of the name of a departed TV series, it's a fiction, horror, and television genre that deals with gothic themes, usually usually of violence, death, and revenge, in industrial and post-industrial urban societies. That's why this is really all really more urban gothic than it necessarily is urban fantasy. Because it is, in fact, a revenge tale. However, unlike a lot of, unlike a lot of other pieces of fiction, this is one in which the vengeance is really treated in somewhat of an, shall we say, intentionally deceptive manner, as we'll see in fact, we're kind of about to have some unsettling things revealed ourselves for the fact that the first couple times we see the movie, we actually catch ourselves cheering for Eric when we really should be wondering, what are we rooting for? Yeah, um, one of the... Yeah, obviously the movie is very layered, Um and you know, and as I said, I think if it hadn't been, it would have been kind of a dull movie to watch. You know, just a guy sort of carving up a gang. Um, but one of the things that makes the movie very interesting is how stylized it is, uh, which I want to talk about for a little bit. Uh, I'll come back to some of the individual performances and actors and whatnot, but I want to talk about the look of the movie. They uh, they interestingly chose. Uh, the, the movie is very, very dark. Um, obviously, there's you know some goth culture elements to it. What do you um, What do you think? In, you know, you've read the comic book, Benjamin, uh, but so you can talk about that if you want. But I mean, what do you think those sort of that sort of style and those elements added to the movie? You know, like if it hadn't been there, what do you you know what What do you think we would have been watching? Um. I think as far as the movie, the movie just kind of tapped into the right thing at the right time. It, it was 1994. We, we talked about this. It was, it was 1994. This was the same year that Kurt Cobain died. It was the height of, like, grunge and, and like, proto-goth culture. Um, it it was kind. It seemed like it was just kind of a happy accident. They they had like this perfect storm of you know uh, underneath everything it was a good story first of all and it was a well made movie, but it also had this layer of uh, you know this layer of relevance that spoke to a lot of you know a lot of young people at the time um, and it uh, it didn't quite look like anything else that had come out you know at the at, at the time. Um, I think it, uh, it's kind of, at the time, critically, it was kind of, I think, unfairly and, and uh, equivalent uh, compared to, to Tim Burton's original Batman. 
probably, and I I say that's because it's probably was the only thing even close to that that it could be compared to, and in that it's a movie, it was a movie based on a comic book that had a dark protagonist, and it was violent and, and moody and that, that sort of thing. Um, but I think it was just different. It was different from from every anything else that, that had you know that had been seen recently and it, during that time period. It, it set it apart, and and you know uh, I'll you know I'll come out and say it. it, it you know the fact that uh, Brandon Lee passed passing away and and due the circumstances of his death probably added something to it too. Unfortunately, but uh, you know that can't be ignored either. I want to uh, get your opinion on this here for just a moment. I want to get your opinion on the violence in the movie because a lot was made of that. And after you, we'll, we'll get Sean in on this too. I found myself rewatching it, and maybe it's because I'm older, uh, maybe because I was trying to look at it critically because I knew we were going to be talking about it. But I found myself being a little unsettled by the violence, which is weird because, like, you know, you watch, say, like Rambo. You know the, the last Rambo movie, which was you know exceptionally violent. We talked we we talked about that on the show, as a matter of fact. And I wasn't unsettled at all. And we've talked about, uh, or at least Sean and Robert Winfrey have talked about some of the horror franchises. And certainly, you know, uh, there I guess there there's certainly some unsettling violence in those things. But it was just weird. Like the the violence in this movie seemed exceptionally brutal for something that wasn't necessarily supposed to be a horror movie. And I'm not saying that in any way comes across that way, but it's there's something very, very visceral about the violence in this, about the way that the family is attacked, and in turn the way that he dishes out retribution. Um, you know, it starts off pretty, pretty plainly, and then it just sort of builds up over time. I mean, we start off with a knife fight, and then we proceed to then stick needles in the guy's chest, and then we're driving another guy off a cliff. Uh, off a dock, rather, and then you have so, you know you have people being impaled by the end of the movie, and another woman getting her eyes pecked out, um, you know, and, and some and some other stuff in in between. But the just I don't know. It, it may, maybe it was because of the way that it was shot and the way that it was set. It seems to me that the that the violence in this was more intense than uh, other movies of this type. What do you think about that? All right. Well, this is where this is where I will go back to uh, mentioning the comic a, a little bit. Um, one thing, and and I actually reread the the comic in full earlier today, and I've, I've come to realize this comic is actually really uncomfortable in parts to get through because let me tell you, as graphic as the movie is, the violence depicted in the comic is far more explicit and far more brutal. I think they actually they they had they had to actually tone down some elements, but they did it in such a way. And and this is something else that I know that um, Brandon Lee actually was and and the director Alex Price, they actually championed keeping this adaptation as true to the spirit of the of of James O'Barr's comic as possible. Um, and this co- the comic was. It was never intended, James Obar never originally intended to publish it. This was meant as pure catharsis after the loss that he suffered at a very young age. It took him nine years to complete the the, the full comic, uh, and it was it was his therapy. It was and and it was meant to be, 
you know, sort of a release the, the only way he really knew how. I think that comes across in the movie, um, you know, it it's not it's not as uncomfortably brutal it, it is in some parts, but it's it's artfully done. It's 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 stylized in such a way that you know, you can tell that that it's meant to you're you're meant to take the violence seriously to a certain point. You're meant to take the action that happens seriously to a certain point. It's not so stylized that it's purely 100% entertaining. I think the intent, I think you're supposed to feel a little bit uncomfortable with some of the things that happen and with some of the ways that even the bad guys are killed. Um, you sort of wonder, you know, it's it's also, and, and you know, this has had this happens in other comics too where there's a lot of death, like, you know, the, the Punisher and Spawn and that sort of thing. Um you sort of wonder, like, you know, where where do you where, where would you draw the line um, as far as you know who how far does the violence go? Who who's going to be on the receiving end of it? And um, you know, the line gets blurred over you know who's the good who's the good guys, who's the bad guys, um, and how far are you willing to go to you know to see justice done or to see vengeance uh, achieved? Sean, what's your thoughts on the on the violence? I think Benjamin makes a good point in that they were trying to stick as closely as they could to the comic book and that there's just supposed to be a lot of gut-punching stuff. But I, I'm just curious to get your, your reaction to the violence in the movie, if any. Well, this really isn't the biff, pow, slam, bam kind of violence. What it is is much like in a lot of Japanese or Korean movies, it's violence that's used as a construct of the story, as a means of defining the characters, not just by their acts, but how we see their acts impact others. And really, the movie can't work if put together in any way except for how James O'Barr and Alex Proyas, respectively, put the narrative together. For example, when we start off, we're immediately introduced to Eric Draven and Shelley Webster, not necessarily by appearance, although we do fleetingly see Shelley wheeled away in an ambulance, but we're introduced to them by the way the characters around them, namely Detective Albrecht and Sarah, react to what's happened to them, to the fact that they've been victims of what's clearly a horrible, unconscionable act of brutality. We can see that Albrecht is taken taken aback by the fact that they're a young couple who was looking forward to soon being married. You see Sarah react to the fact that she's a girl that we get, that as she points out, is pretty much alone in the world except for the fact that Shelley and Eric are more or less her guardians, her caretakers. So we get to know them through their loss. And after that, we're then subsequently introduced to the villains, T-Bird's crew. Uh, T-Bird, Fun, T-Bird, Funboy, and Tintin. And really what sort of thoughtless, unconscionable people, people they are. And Really, if you had done it in any other order, the villains are so over the top that if you had introduced them first, 
we might have almost ended up being more intrigued by them than we are by Eric. You have to you have to first establish who it is in the movie that we're supposed to feel sorry for, and then gradually bring about the people who did these terrible things to them, and thus, in sort of a vicarious way, instill those immediate feelings of sorrow in us. And as far as the violence goes, well, that's where the movie is really pretty brilliantly put together. In the fact that the violence is stylized in terms of how it's shot, stylized in terms of how it's lit, how it looks. The violence itself is feral. It's primal, vicious. It isn't a calculating, elaborate martial arts brawl. It's simply one man more brutal. Excuse me? Sorry, uh, it gets increasingly more brutal as the movie goes on, too. It Well, it, it does, but I'm getting to that. Just hang on, sir. Um, and it's just channeled directly in one concentrated direction after another. But... The thing about the violence really is is the fact that as it goes along and as in flashbacks we see the kind of man that Eric was in life, we start to realize that in the quest of vengeance, he's really living up to the old adage that if you seek revenge on somebody, dig two graves, one for your foe and one for yourself. Because another one of the more subtle themes of the movie is the way that the violence, darkness, and loss of life, if you're not careful, has a way of eroding who you are. And now we come to the climax where we, re- of what I've been saying, we realize that the movie tricks you. The more action movies we watch, we're so used to rooting for every destructive act that the good guy commits against the bad guy. Whether we're talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger in in Commando bankrupting every insurance company in the world by by taking down everything in its path, or Batman hanging a gargoyle off the Joker's foot and allowing him to plummet to his death in Tim Burton's Batman. In this, though, it's treated a little bit differently because... We're, in, we're introduced very early in the movie to the brutality that's committed by T-Bird's crew and how it's done at the behest of Top Dollar, played masterfully by Michael Wincott, who also plays a villain that really, as we see, is a man that once had a soul and was made into a monster by being introduced to darkness, violence, death and creating mayhem. And as we go along, we quickly realize that with every member of T-Bird's crew that uh, Eric takes down, he's gradually becoming little more than something like them. He's not really doing anything productive with it, productive with these acts. He's not doing any, anything worthwhile. It's simply vengeance. There's nothing else that really come that really comes out of it. And so 
eventually you have to ask the question, if we're rooting for all this, if we're happy to see the truly horrible thing that he's doing without a second thought as he goes along, what does it say about us if this is really bringing out so much glee in the audience? But the really fascinating part about it is the fact that as it goes along and as you watch the relationship between Eric and Albrecht, what you realize is that Albrecht becomes his anchor to what's left of his human side. And it's the only time we really see all that darkness and rage and vengeance start to leave Eric. And when he starts to remember that at heart, he's a man. He was a loving per- he was a loving person and that all of this that he's created in his wake isn't really who he is. And at this point I've also got to make a recommendation for some additional watching. If you if you also want to see this explained in a sorry not to demean us too much, but probably better produced and more organized way than we're going about it, I would strongly suggest bopping on over to blit.tv or radiodeadair.com and checking out Nash's review from Here There Be Dragons. I'll admit that I took a lot of talking points from it and a lot of inspiration when I was researching researching the movie, but it's only because I never really took these things into consideration until I saw it, but then I, but that was when I realized that this movie is a lot more than just a violent saga of retribution. In a way, it's kind of an unsettling mirror that we're forced to look into into through our own reactions. Sure. Um, I think they had to they, they had to make sure that, and this is what I said at the, at the top of the discussion, they weren't getting just lost in the violence and that he wasn't some sort of horror monster hacking his way from one the film to the other. You had, you know, you, you had to be the audience has to continually root for the guy. And so um, over the course of the film, they show him through Albrecht, through Sarah, through his own memories, regaining that sense of humanity. Um, let's talk a little bit about performances. And I'm actually, uh, I, I want to talk about Brandon Lee's performance because he really does just jump right off the screen without being uh, all hackneyed about it. And if you need an example of how not to be, uh, that character, all you have to do is watch the second film, but we'll get there. Um, I actually want to talk about the crew because I found myself thinking about, the, I mean, this is not a new idea in terms of, you know, the, the brutal hoodlums. There's always, you know, there, there's so many crews in so many movies and inevitably you've got the one with the high pitch laugh, right? There's always the one that goes, ah! you know, that really horrible laugh. It's in every movie. Um, there's always a leader. There's an idiot, and there's always and, and there's a ninja. <laughs> so there's always a there's always a ninja. So you have the ninja, the the clown, the sidekick, and the leader. There's your four horsemen of every movie ever written with a gang in it. Am I right, Benjamin? Of course I'm right. And so <laughs> you have these guys, and, and as much as I'm making light of it. Many movies, you can't wait for these people to die because they're so annoying. This one, this one was very, very careful to make them menacing, uh, 
and, and give you all those annoying qualities, but still keep them menacing enough that there, there, there's a degree of fear there. There's there, you, you don't you're not rooting for them to die because they're annoying. You're rooting for them to die because they're terrible human beings. Um, I think at the very least, the the one that might have drove me a little more nuts than than the rest of them was Fun Boy, and that's the one with the high pitched laugh. Uh, but overall. I thought that, I, and I've never seen any of these actors in anything else. If you guys have, that's great. But, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they're a bunch of nobodies. And I thought they turned in for what they were supposed to be doing very interesting performances. Um, they weren't run-of-the-mill bad guy types. You know, I say bad things and do bad things, and that's all I, I, I amount to. You know the type. You know, bad guy McVillain. Um, kind of stuff where they're not really acting, they're just reciting dialogue. There's none of that. Um, they're not eating up. They're not eating up the uh, the screen either. They're not chewing the scenery. They're somewhere you know in the middle, right where they need to be. And I they they would waver here and there. They would kind of they, you know every once in a while I would start to see them going a little too far one way, especially when they focused on one character too long. But they would bring it right back again. Um, so Ben, we'll start with you. What did you think of the performance of uh, of the gang? Um, I think um, everybody had a chance to, you know, uh, everybody had a chance to show a little bit of personality, and and even when you're when you're doing villains and, and when you're writing villains and when you when your villains are taking so much of, of the screen time of a movie. It's it's still important to uh, maybe humanize is the wrong word, but you still even even though they're the bad guys, you still have to be interested enough to want to see what happens to them, whether it's you know whether it's something terrible that happens to them or not. Um, you don't want to wish for them to go away necessarily. Um, they did, you know, that's something that not everybody gets. Uh, you know, it's it's also a thing that plagues, like, slasher movies where, you know, just because these characters are going to die, that means that, you know, we have to make them completely unlikable and, and completely bland or sometimes both bland and unlikable. And um, in this case, you know, each member of the gang, you know, had, you know, had certain scenes where you got to know just enough about them to know that they stood out. Each of them stood out. Each of them had their own unique personality. Each of them had a voice. But you still wanted to see them, you know, have, you know, revenge exacted upon them. They were still the villains. You didn't root for them. But it's they were still it's, interesting. It's pro wrestling, yeah. isn't it? I'm going to let you continue. It's, it's very much they built up the heels so that, you would want to see them get their comeuppance. If you don't really build up, is. if you just feed your hero a bunch of meaningless jobbers, then that's all you're going to get out of it. You're just watching a guy squash people, and that's fun in order to see what the guy can do, but not enough for a 90-minute movie. There was also some, you know, when when we finally and and when when you finally get to the, you know, the the gang sit down and. There's tons of other, you know, gang members there, and and Eric is just going through them one after the other after the other. That's that's your jobber squash right there, um, and it's awesome. 
but by that point, you already know, you know, you already know exactly what characters you need to be interested in. And the rest is just kind of the cannon fodder. And that was, that was the point where I think the director just looked at Brandon Lee and just said, you know, just go do what you do. <laughs> yeah, kind of a, a slow build to your to your big schmas right before the pay per view in wrestling parlance. Yeah. And folks, there's your there's your long road to ruin wrestling moment of the show. Um, what did you think of the big boss there, Sean? Uh, I believe it's Gideon is his name. He's played by, if I got this right. Um, no, no. Gideon is, no? is the name of the pawn shop owner. Top Dollar is the name of the boss. No. Top Dollar? Yeah. That's the name of the... Oh, you're right. Michael Wincott. All right. Um, helps of, damn it, where's the picture here, Wikipedia? Anyway, what did you think of the big boss? He, uh, he, uh, and I, I want to talk about him just because in the second movie, there's a, there's a bigger world going on too, which I have to criticize. And here, you know, there's a bigger world here. This guy pretty much owns Detroit. He owns the cops. That's, that's sort of the subplot of this whole thing. Um, the bigger world of the crow is that Detroit has, is that this guy top dollar has Detroit in the palm of his hand. Um, and that, you know, what happened to him was a small part of it. And of course it blows up into this huge thing. Uh, so he's your big boss. What did you, what did you think of him, his performance, what he added to the movie? Well, T-Bird's crew is really supposed to be a feral pack of hyenas. They're supposed to be the remorseless, destructive, thoughtless bunch of people who really just enjoy creating chaos for the sake of creating chaos. We don't really need to care about what motivates them. They really are are there just to burn, torch, murder, rape, and pillage because, well, fucking reasons. Because shut up, that's why. <laughs> Because, because don't make me knife and burn you. That's why. On the other hand, Top Dollar is played with a certain degree of subtlety that I can appreciate by Michael Wincott in that by the end of the movie, we really see that he's a good contrast to Eric. In a sense, we see that both men have power of their have power of their own. And we can see that, in a sense, Top Dollar is almost what could happen to Eric if he descends much further. Because at the very beginning of the movie, we get a little window into him when he utters the, when he utters the line, and forgive me if I get this wrong, my daddy once, taught, once told me, son, childhood is over the moment you find out you're, the moment you know you're going to die. In a way, it's somewhat say, it's somewhat saying that he really didn't start out being a bad guy. He didn't start out necessarily being a monstrous force of destruction. It happened gradually through an evolution of his choices, through his actions, and he just descended further and further and further until... Really, his humanity was all but just a faint memory to him. And as we go along, we see Eric sort of descend down that same path and remaining in that same sort of world of darkness 
except for the fact that at the very end, he ultimately makes a choice to both symbolically and literally let go of all the pain, let go of the grieving, let go, let go of the sorrow, and just let him have it. Just release and purge it from him, for himself. And that's the moment when he does that and in the process manages to do it out of an act of love to save somebody else that he manages to escape everything that Top Dollar eventually becomes. So it's really quite a good thing that he was set apart from T from T Bird and his crew because otherwise all that we would end up with is just, well, kind of another story of Batman versus the Joker. Okay, let's um let's do one more thing and then we'll uh we'll close out our discussion on the crow, I think. Uh Brandon Lee. Wow, Brandon Lee uh, was was kind of given a tough task. Uh, he has to carry this movie. If he doesn't work, the movie doesn't work. And he's given this Avenging Angel character to play with his face painted up, and um, he's given some interesting lines of dialogue, to say the least. And he carries it very well. Brandon Lee gives, I would say, an understated performance. And thank God, because what you don't want is and this might be a bit of an exaggeration here, but you don't want Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze. You know, you don't want... What you don't want is this guy walking around, cracking-wise, taking you completely out of the movie. He he has a couple of moments of real humanity. My my favorite... my, my, My favorite performance of his in the movie is actually when... is after the crow gets injured, and then he's injured... And he suddenly realizes he's no longer immortal, and he just his whole character just breaks. He almost—it's not quite, but he almost breaks the fourth wall and pans to the camera. You know, it's 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 understated and brilliant, Um, but also like over the over the top hysterical. You know, just sort of rolls his eyes and goes, "Oh great!" (laughs) I loved it, but. Going back, as, as as he begins to uh, gain confidence and a sense of his his self, he he takes command of this new persona, where he's menacing, but he's not again a horror monster. Um, there's there's always these there's always these glimpses of light in his performance uh, in in the sea of darkness. You know. As he goes, he goes about the course of murdering people. He's not this crazy avenging psycho killer as such. He's also not delivering, you know, carny comical lines. He's just he's sort of in the moment, and um, and he evolves throughout the movie. You know, he is not the same when he's fighting Tintin as when he's dealing with Fun Boy or when he's dealing with. Uh, T-Burn and Skank. Um, and, I, and I really like that. Brandon Lee, it, it, is, it is an awful shame that he died the way that he did, uh, that he died at all, because he could have gone on to be uh, an, an action hero. He, you know, depending on the kind of roles that he took, uh, the movies, he, he could have been a very successful action hero. 
I thought um, I thought he showed range. I thought he showed uh, you know he he was he was able to keep still in front of the camera. You could read his face even under all that paint. I really thought that he captured the spirit of the character very very well and didn't go crazy and you know and make him this over the top superhero. Ben, what'd you think? Okay. Um yeah, I'm uh I apologize in advance if any if I steal anybody anything anybody was gonna say, but my god do I have a lot to say about this. Um first of all, Mark, yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. If this if Brandon Lee does not work in this movie, the the movie itself doesn't work. This movie lives and dies by Brandon Lee's performance and luckily is phenomenal. And it's it's really iconic, and that's an overused word, but it's it's very appropriate in, in, in this instance, and that's proven by every subsequent Crow sequel that where, and I, I'll, I won't get too much into this, but this is something that I, you know, quickly, like, came to observe. Basically, every actor should play the lead in each Crow sequel after the original tries to play the same creepy traumatized borderline insanity that Brandon Lee did. Not one of them come close because they all kind of miss the point entirely, both in the performance. Some of it is performance and some of it is the way that the the movies were written. Um, But Brandon Lee played a character and he played a character who had, who was relatable, even though, you know, it's a fantastical situation. Uh, he played a character who had returned from the dead after the last thing he had seen was his fiance being murdered. If you put, if you you try to put yourself in that position, and it's a it's an incredible position to try to imagine yourself in. It's a terrible position to try to imagine yourself in, but you 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 might find yourself thinking, well, maybe I'd react to some of these things in the same way. And the problem with that, well, there, that's not a problem. The problem that other pro sequels ran into every other pro sequel ran into is that every other lead in every other one of those sequels kept trying to play Brandon Lee in the crow. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And that doesn't work. Um, I totally agree. Brandon Lee had a bright future ahead of him very much. So, he had the look, he had, you know, the pedigree, and he had the, you know, he had the physical presence. He could act. He was a good actor. He would have, you know, I think he could have only gotten better. Um, I, I I was telling Sean earlier, and, and I've told this to plenty of people, uh, like, I firmly believe if Brandon Lee was still alive today, uh, Keanu Reeves' phone would never even so much have rang for, for The Matrix, because that was, that was the part he was born to play. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a tremendous shame because there's so, this was, this was his breakout role and he just did everything right. He just, he just lit this movie and, and, and just, uh, was the driving force behind every other thing that, that fell into place that, that made this movie great. Yep. Well said, Sean. Uh, last words here on Brandon Lee and and the movie uh, movie total because because we have uh, about forty five minutes left and I just, and boy do we we have to talk about City of Angels. Well, as far as Brandon Lee goes, really to sum it up pretty nicely, Brandon Lee 
man, it's hard to say since he was so young when his when his father, the late great Bruce Lee, died. Whether he necessarily just naturally inherited this, or perhaps he learned it from watching his father, or really what it was that inspired it, but he understood something that was a big part of Bruce Lee's martial arts career, and that is something that he that he throws in as a line in Enter the Dragon. It's the idea of giving violence emotional content, giving it context, you give it a purpose. And granted, in this case, he's working with an existing and pretty true adaptation of somebody else's work, but that's really what he does throughout the movie, is he gives it emotion, but he also gives it the right emotion, and he also gets the idea that it's supposed to evoke some questions about just why exactly we're rooting for everything that Eric Draven does, and whether we even really should be rooting for this path of destruction. As far as the rest of the movie goes, though, there's really just one other thing that we didn't talk about that extensively, and that is the music. First off, for as much as everyone loves the OST, and absolutely rightfully so, and I'll get to that in a minute, what really doesn't get enough credit is the fact that Graham Ravel, throughout both this movie and the next one, contributes a haunting, gorgeous, atmospheric score without which the movie truly would have suffered and would have lost a lot of that resonating emotional impact thanks to every perfectly timed incidental orchestral swell. But one thing that the OST does that a lot of soundtracks since have lost their way in terms of remembering how to do is the idea that it's not just there to push a single. It's not just there to spotlight one particular artist. It's there to really contribute something to the movie, most notable in the fact that Stone Temple Pilots, in the wake of Brandon Lee's death, decided to pull their original, the original song they had wanted to contribute in favor, in favor of adding, hang on, oh yes, um, they were initially going to contribute, going to contribute their version of Only Dying, um, but instead in the wake of Lee's death, they decided to go with the much more Meaning, the much more meaningful Big Empty as sort of a tribute to Brandon and his fiancée. Everything, every song in the movie adds something to every scene in which, the, in which they appear. And too often that's an art that really just falls by the wayside. Otherwise, a few moments of ridiculous non-fuckery aside, like wanting to scream at your tell at your television during the scene with Sarah's mother, morphine doesn't work that way as Brandon <laughs> as Eric squeezes it out of her veins. Um, there's really nothing about this movie that could have been done any, done any differently. I mean, and this is saying a lot considering that Alex Proyas did some great work around the rate, around that time and after it, truly is his masterpiece. And unfortunately, as we move on to talking about City of Angels tonight, 
we have to acknowledge that everybody who came after the writers, producers, directors, and stars of this movie lost the goddamn point entirely. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Um, listen, I-, I could do an entire metal hammer of doom on the Crow soundtrack, and we will be here till. Uh, we run out of recording time if I start talking about it. And I mean, when 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 I say it was the soundtrack to high school, and every single one of those songs had sort of like a deeper meaning personally. We will be here all night. So, needless to say, it's an awesome soundtrack. Um, echoing to word to Sean there. But uh, before we move on, I want to give Benjamin sort of an opportunity here. Any anything we didn't talk about? I know we left out a couple of characters in terms of performances, like Ernie Hudson, the broad that plays Sarah. Um, just because I don't like, have a whole lot to say. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, Benjamin, I know this was a deep and meaningful movie to you, so is there anything that we did not discuss that you thought uh, would be a crying shame if we didn't? Um, I think we touched on on some of the, you know, some of the finer points of it. Uh, you know, most of my contribution to anything we would have to say would lean more towards the comic and just, you know, suffice to say like that the comic and, and, you know, as a result, the movie is is a huge influence on me as, as an artist. Um, we did this thing on Twitter a while ago that was like four comics that, that uh, changed your life. And, and the crow was most certainly one of them. Um, if it was four movies, I'm sure the movie would be right there with it. Um, you know, it's, it was influential. Uh, it was influential then, and it, and it continues to influence me to this day. I think uh, Jesse Starcher, who uh, on Mondays here on the Rattle and Broadcasting Network hosts a comic book uh, retrospective show called Source Material, I believe his intention mm-hmm. is to have you on that show to discuss the comic at length. So, for those of you who are listening to this podcast and I'm going, all right, enough about the movie. Tell us more about the comic book. Uh, that's Jesse's department. So, well, um, I am going to be on source material next Monday. It's, we're we're not going to cover the crow, but uh, that may be down the line. But you know, I might as well get one plug out of the way while we're at it. Sure. Um, I talked to Jesse, and unfortunately, we couldn't get it together where we where we get you on the crow around the time that we were still doing this. But the intention is to have you on to talk the crow soon. Um, just as we are, we are going to. I, I may be making my debut on source material around the time of uh, Age of Ultron to discuss uh, Demon in a Bottle, uh, the Iron Man uh, storyline. So, why not let plugs out of the way? All right. So, as Robert Winfrey is famous for saying, the uh, the pig hostage, the uh, <laughs> the profitability pig hostage, being what it is. You know, the crow made money, and even though uh, a man died, uh, they said, no, 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 we, we we don't need the man as such. We'll just have somebody playing the man, and it'll be just fine. So two years later, <laughs> we we get a new crow movie, The Crow, City of Angels. We go from Detroit to Los Angeles, like WrestleManias. And this time, we've got, uh, we've got Vincent Perez as Ash Corbin, a.k.a. The Crow, We've got Mia Kirshner as an all-grown-up Sarah, Richard Brooks as the main villain, Judah Earl, Thu uh, Trang as the broad, Kali. Uh, uh, then we have Iggy Pop as as our hench- lead henchman, leader of the gang, 
has curve. Thomas Jane, famous from The Punisher, that was shot here in Tampa, as uh, Pervert Nemo. <laughs> Vincent Castellanos uh, as Spider Monkey, and it just kind of goes on from there. So, uh, the story on this one is that instead of a man and his and his woman on the day before for their marriage, we have uh, a father and his son, his dopey dopey son, um, witnessing the murder of a drug dealer, and said murderers don't want to leave any witnesses, and even though they beg for their life and they say we're not going to say anything, and who would we tell anyway? Uh, they are murdered in cold blood and dumped in a river. Uh, around the same time, we have a all grown up Sarah, who is living in Los Angeles as a tattoo artist and a painter, and she's having dreams, uh, sort of foresight about what's going to happen to Ash and his dopey, dopey son. Um, and so she still has feelings uh, for Eric Draven. She goes out and after this guy and becomes kind of his guide because what we apparently uh, got in the first film in terms of show me, don't tell me, was abandoned for tell me, tell me, tell me. <laughs> you know, we, what, what this movie needs more of is expedition, exposition dumps, is I imagine what was said as this movie was made. Um, so she's there to play exposition uh, dumper, and, uh, she, you know, and her character is there because she still has feelings for Eric, and any old crow will do. In any case... Uh, this all takes place in the wider world of Judah's uh, drug trade, which we'll talk about. And um, it's the same sort of thing. Once he comes back to life, uh, he goes on a murdering spree and makes his way towards uh, Judah. And then and Sarah's there to help him along the way. This is written by David Goyer. David Goyer, the man who brought us Man of Steel. Uh, uh, <laughs> Batman Begins. Uh, a couple of Blade movies, excuse me. Um, Goddamn Goyer. Well, can we just start with David Goyer for a second? Because this is one shit-tastic movie. It is poorly written. Um, it was poorly acted. There's really not a whole lot of good here. But I'm looking through David Goyer's writing resume, and you know we discussed Blade uh, a week or so ago, a couple weeks ago, and Blade was good, and it was written by David Goyer. Uh, Man of Steel, not so good. You're going to make a song. You're going to do it. Keep going. The, I'm just uh, warning you. You have The Dark Knight, which is good. And then you have this thing, which is a pile of trash. Uh-oh. Before, before no, Joe, Sean has before Sean has a conniption, let me get to my point, and then Sean can can break me over the coals, I guess. But here, here's my thing. I'm watching I'm watching this movie, and I think you know Ben said like you have a, you have someone here who just misses the point. It was like David Goyer sat down and watched The Crow, didn't get the deeper meaning behind any of it, and just kind of saw surface what what was there, and did a parody of it basically, with, without meaning to do so. That's how this thing comes across. It's 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 all the crassness uh, of the violence with none of the meaning behind it. And on top of which, David Goyer, if this is any revelation about his soul or about his psyche, is one lunatic person. I mean, just an absolute insane person. 
I, I don't get it. Go ahead, Sean. Oh, you're, you're finished? Let it rip. I'm done. Off my soapbox. Oh, he co-wrote Blade, and Blade was good. Oh, he co-wrote the Batman movies and Batman movies. Wrong, 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 wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> no, no. You see, here's the point that you're missing about David Goyer. Actually, two points you're missing about David Goyer. Number one, yeah, you're right. He did write Blade. He also had the likes of Stephen Norrington and Guillermo del Toro looking over his shoulder. Yeah, you're right. He did work on the Dark Knight movies with the genius Nolan brothers both looking over his shoulder. And in fact, in those movies, he was working for what somebody else had already written long ago. So all he had to do was collaborate with them to adapt the pieces into a workable order for the new medium, and even in terms of Superman Returns. Okay, granted, there are many times when Zack Snyder is capable of being an overly indulgent tit. I'll admit that. But in this case, once more, he had somebody moderately competent looking over his shoulder. Now, let's remember, what in the bloody blue ball sack fuck happened when David Goyer was handed the reins to his own movie? The man is the Vince Russo of screenwriters. He's fine when he has a filter, when he has somebody standing next to him with a cattle prod, but when he comes up with a dumb fucking idea, they can stick that thing on his daddy bag and say, no, no, bad, bad puppy. You want a good example? His original idea for this movie? He was going to have Sarah return as a female crow. Oh, in another version, they were going to set the story in 19th century England. Yeah, yeah. These were his original ideas. Ugh. And, you know, the other thing to remember about Goyer is the fact that when he's working from something based on somebody else's source material, the problem is he never enters with any fucking respect for it. He enters and seems to have this mindset of, your way sucks, I can do it better. And he ends up pretty much alienating everybody in the process. It's something that Hollywood has never quite fucking figured out about him yet. Unfortunately, in this case, um, we're left with one monkey at one typewriter who's had the reason center of his brain scooped out with a melon baller and two other fucking monkeys named the Weinstein brothers at at two other typewriters who we can only assume repeatedly over the years have been beaten in the head with claw hammers because let's not go into the various questionable decisions they've made. Uh, Yeah, because we we really don't want to get me started on the Hellraiser franchise again. We really, really, really don't. Because their idea 
while Goyer and the other filmmakers wanted to actually respect Brandon Lee's memory and do a completely different movie, albeit one with two apparently stupid ideas that I just mentioned, were that they wanted the wanted this to be re-edited, re-edited to resemble the original Crow as closely as possible. The result being that fellow film, that director Tim Pope and Goyer both disowned the movie. They both wanted nothing to do with that. So that's almost like somebody coming up with a wrestling storyline so stupid in the dying days of WCW that even Vince Russo said, God, don't give me credit for that one. I stand by what I originally said. David Goyer has some deep-seated psychological problems, and they all apparently came out in this film. This was almost oh, unwatchable. Right about, oh, you're right about that, too. I just had to bust out the wrong song because I felt like you seriously missed the point The point about everything else that is wrong with Goyer. Okay. Well, you you're, you are much more in touch with the finer points of, of some of his resume than I am. You know, I looked at his Wikipedia page, saw he wrote some of these things, and went, okay, well, boy, are you hitting this. Well, apparently he's hit when he's when you know when someone's holding his hand and he misses when he's on the phone. You um, know what? When, when you're working with the when you're working with the Nolan brothers, you know it's 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 about like trying to write a bad song to write a bad song when your songwriting partners are Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney. Just by virtue of who's holding your hand. It's just about impossible for it to really fail entirely, as evinced by the fact that the Dark Knight Rises, while by all means the weakest part of the part of the Dark Knight saga, was actually still pretty good. It wasn't an utter complete flop. But again, you have to compare that to the fact that to the fact that Blade was good. Blade Two, depending on who you ask was arguably even better. Then, God help us, we handed we handed David full creative control for a third movie, and fuck me sideways, we got Triple H with metal fangs and a vampire Pomeranian. You know what I would compare The Dark Knight Rises to, and then, and then we really do have to get on with talking about the movie. I work in a jail, as people who follow me know, and there are some really, really, like, hot women who get arrested. Very, I mean, it doesn't, you know, anyone can get arrested. Anyone can get a DUI. Um, and they arrest people for just about anything these days. So, uh, you know, it, 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 the long law and the law touches all, all mankind. And so throughout the course of my day, you know, sure, we get a lot of haggard-looking people that, you know, a lot of bridge trolls. But... Uh, we do occasionally get in, um, especially if I work the weekends, you know, get the, de- get the drinking crowd, the club crowd, and there are some really hot-looking broads that get brought into the jail. And I'll start talking to them because that's my job. I'm, my, I am there to assess whether or not we need to put them in, a, in what they call a turtle suit, um, which is <laughs> it's a really thick green smock that they give you instead of clothing if you are in any way suicidal to stop you from trying to kill yourself. In any case, uh the Dark Knight Rises is kind of like talking to one of these really, really hot women that comes into the jail who, as I'm talking to her, I'm starting, starting to realize that she's uh, schizophrenic, off meds, and, and on every drug out there in the street. And it still looks really pretty, still manages to keep up her looks. 
strangely enough, but are shooting a bag of heroin a day and has been schizophrenic since since the age of 18. That would be my, my description of The Dark Knight Rises. It looked pretty, but if you start to think about it and get to, and really dig into the film, oh, boy, this has got some problems. But that you know, that's, that's actually one good thing that I can say uh, about this movie. Now, now that you bring up how bring up how it looks, is uh, you know once more, Alex. You know, I mean, Alex McDowell came onto this movie to work on the production side alongside Tim Pope, and they had worked together previously. And I felt like the actual look of the movie was more or less fine in terms of making Los Angeles kind of look just enough like Detroit to uh, give it a connection to the first movie. So, I mean, that's but that's one of the only really good things I can say about this. Oh, one shocking thing I can say, this became a video game. Yeah. Did it really? <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. Of all the possible of all the possible crow movies and the T V series that you could have made into a game, they picked this one. Sure. <laughs> so I mean, I sorry, Jaguar. I, and I and I suddenly masochistically want to track this down. That sounds like a that sounds like a fun nostalgic game night. Alright, let's get let's get into this. Um Let's let's just go through some of the performances here because I, I, I just, it's just terrible. All right, so Vincent Perez as Ash Corbin, aka the Crow, the father of the dopey child. Um, and I say the dopey child because the whole reason they get they are, they are like living in an alley. It looks like they're living in you know they're in the squalor. He's working on a motorcycle. The kids, for some odd reason, wearing a vest with no shirt. Um, you know, like father, like son, I suppose. And the kid is, you know, as I've said, and uh, and of other people have insisted, children, especially Robert Winfrey, uh, children in movies typically suck. They're just not good. Um, occasionally, you get one um, that that can act, but they're, they're few and far between. And this one was definitely not one of them. So he's sort oh, yeah. of playing. He, he he looks to be about nine or ten, but he's playing either mentally retarded or he's playing four. I don't know. I don't know what was going on in this scene. But um, when they show you the actual murder, he's drawing in his vest with no shirt because that's how you dress your children. And they hear a gunshot. Now, um, I think any person living in uh, the inner city, any person living in a high-crime area will tell you that when you hear gunshots, you hit the floor. And you hit the floor because you do not want to get hit by a stray bullet. If they've been living in this alley for more than 20 minutes, I'm fairly certain they've heard gunshots before. But in, the, in this movie, what David Goyer would like you to believe is that this idiot of a child heard a gunshot, smiled like a doofus, and then proceeds to go running into the street to go see what all the ruckus is about. Yeah, I can... Uh... If I if I may, I can attest because um, I have I I actually did live in a very not particularly nice place when I was about that kid's age, and um, I don't think my I don't remember my mother ever teaching me 
that uh, when you hear anything that sounds like gunfire, to immediately seek it out with rapt curiosity. That seems <laughs> unwise. In a multiple choice test, if you hear gunfire, you should A, get in the bathtub, B, drop to the floor, C, run out and find out what it is, or D, like, my God. Anyway. It's like no survivalists. <laughs> no, not at all. And the thing of it is, is that, like, there's no, there, like, I don't understand what Tim Pope was doing in that scene. Like, the kid's just smiling like an idiot through the whole thing. So he gets out there, and they see, and, and he sees a gang of people murdering a drug dealer in the street. And he's just, just sitting there, just, just taking it all in. And the father goes out after him, and, and he sees it too. And then they look and they see them, and they run back in and shoot and kill both of them. Um, you know, the father tries to beg for the kid's life. Um, and they're like, nope, and they're dead, and they go in the water. So, okay. Uh, Vincent Perez's performance. This is a classic case of you not owning the character, and instead, as we were saying before, you're trying to do your best impression of the last guy who had this role. There's nothing new about the, about this portrayal other than it's just poor. You know, it, it's a poor impression of Brandon Lee. And that's all you get for, for the entire length of this movie. Looks okay. He actually looks like him cooler than Brandon Lee. But this is, a, but this is yet another case of, um, you know, you're pretty as long as you don't talk. <laughs> I actually think they did a very good job of making him look, look really, really cool. Except that this movie needed to be a silent film. And the only person who should have had dialogue was Iggy Pop. Because he actually, he's the high point in this movie, unfortunately. Uh, I, I just, I need, to, I need to hold my head in my hands. Benjamin? Uh, oh, oh, you mean the guy who left at the end of his uh, time in the movie actually screams, Do you know how to die? <laughs> <laughs> and like I, I stand by my initial statement. Iggy Pop is the best actor in this film. The best? Yeah, and you know yeah. what? That's the truly sad part, because the best acting Iggy Pop has ever pulled off was portraying himself as a DJ in Grand Theft Auto 4, or, depending on your preference, as the quirky neighbor on the adventures of Pete Pete. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> as you were saying, Benjamin. Um... Yeah, uh, it's hard to know where to start with this. First of all, a couple of things that I, yeah, a couple of things that that I'll mention that are sure to come back up and annoy us all as we move forward uh, and as we later on get into the other sequels. Every single protagonist in in each one of these uh, Crow sequels uh, has a last name that means Crow in a different language. So this is a level of subtlety and uh, creativity that we're dealing with from here on out. Uh, are you afraid? <laughs> no, nobody who has ever seen this movie had better ever again soil a wrestling board by bitching about the names WWE comes up with for their developmental talent. Yeah, because they are. I, because I, I'm sorry, just the way they roll off the tongue. They are the most trying to fucking hard goth name. It, it, it's like something that some fucktarded little goth high schooler would insist on being called instead of his real name right about the time he discovers Lincoln Park and Hot Topic. Yeah. By the way... My name uh, is a Jimmy. 
Ash. Ash Corbin. <laughs> yeah, the sad thing is there is a Jimmy in this series later on with an even worse le- with an even worse crow name. I I I. I and is it Jimmy? I've seen a housefly. No. And, and of and of course, every time anybody who's ever encountered one of these types also realizes that every time they try to make some kind of pronouncement like that, whether it's somebody's goofy cousin or nephew or something, you just want you just want to fucking tell them what don't just whatever just bag just bag up my bag up my sub doofus I'm in a hurry. All right. <laughs> Give me my um, damn sandwich. By the way, one other thing, Sean, um, you totally beat me to the Vince Russo comparison, but it's okay because you were funnier than I would have been. <laughs> it, that was, that was totally where I was going. I'm sorry. It's, it's, what I think of, it's what I think of every time I think of this stupid son of a bitch. Right down to, I mean, well, Ben, you're a big comic book fan, so I'm sure you remember the comic book, the comments that he made not too long ago about how, oh, God, help me out here if I misquote him. She did um, She-Hulk. No, no, is it, yeah, was it, um, was it she, She-Hulk? Yeah, yeah She-Hulk, was, She-Hulk was by design, was designed by guys who wanted a fantasy big green porn star that they could dream about fucking. And, oh, and uh, Martian Manhunter fans are all basement-dwelling virgins. Yeah, that's... David Goyer, as he pertains to comic books and comic book fans, is kind of the epitome of uh, the next time you have a thought, let it go. Yeah, tell me that. Tell me that doesn't have about the same ring to it as Mexican and Japanese guys will never get over in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, to to quote a Kevin Smith line that I'm sure you're familiar with, that's you know, in in Hollywood. As in the wrestling business, you fail up. You, yeah, you fail upward. And uh, God in heaven has, uh, God in heaven has this dipshit failed upward. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> let me let me real quick go through. The, let me try to get back on track here. Um, a couple of things. First of all, yeah, the the caliber of acting, you know, nosedive. Pretty much every this is where everything starts to nosedive, this movie. Um, you know, Mia Kirshner is serviceable, and that's why she still kind of sort of has a career. Um, she's not terrible, but she doesn't really have a whole lot to do until the end where she gets killed. Um, and uh, it was funny. The, the, the note that I took as I started going through this movie was um, – they seem to, Tim Pope seemed to want to portray, you know, this very near future uh, L.A. as this, you know, irredeemable, dank, dirty, crime and drug-ridden shithole where the sun never comes up. And it's about as accurate as the portrayal of New York City in uh, Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Um, yeah, uh you know, thematically, you know the the, you know, uh, I I agree that that they were going for something similar to what uh, they were doing with Detroit in the first movie. I actually think it was a good call that 
visually, there's a lot, you know, since Alex Proyas' movie was really dark and there's there's not a whole lot of color except where, you know, it has the most impact, this is actually a movie that has uh, quite a quite a few bright colors and, and things that pop, and, and that works, uh, at least that works in, in contrast to the first movie to where you're not completely even ripping off the visual style. I mean, I'll give it that. Uh, even though like the camera work is for shit in some some of these in some of the shots, like uh, you know, it's. Uh, by the way, did anybody catch the uh, the crow suiting up montage? Did, am I the only one that caught that? Uh, no, so, I, like, I got it. I mean, I watched it, and all I could think of was, I, you know, I think every I think every person deserves their own getting ready for work uh, montage. Good God. That's another thing. Alex Proyas was the only director in this series to get the fact that the crow is not Batman. Like, <laughs> I, this is not a thing that needed to, this is not a character that needed a suiting up montage, okay? Well, that was the thing. They they, they show Eric Draven getting dressed in the first movie, but that was because he was buried in, in funeral clothing and that, you know, that that don't make for good killing outfits. So you know he goes back to his apartment and he kind of gets in gets gets dressed in his old gear. You know his okay. his clothes. But, this but, this but, one, yeah, you're right. They made it look like you know he was yeah he was in the Batcave suiting up. Okay, but yeah. but here's the problem with this though, and this is just one of the earliest examples. Right along with the fact that my research tells me that um, uh, the the actor who um, uh, portrayed him, uh, Perez, I, I can't read my own kitchen script, Vincent Perez, um, based his version version of uh, our sympathetic character on Jim Morrison in Hamlet um, <laughs> okay. is, is, the, is the fact neither Pope nor Goyer apparently gets the difference that when... Eric Draven suited up that way in The Crow. It was a reflection of who he was in life. It wasn't really all that far removed. I mean, it reflected and added darkness and a kind of hollowness to him, what with the white and black makeup and everything. But it wasn't really all that entirely far off of who he was. On the other hand, we see in the flashbacks that... Our hero here is a motorcycle mechanic. He's working in a ratty T-shirt and jeans, and the next thing he knows, when he becomes the crow, you know, it would strongly be my it would have been my suggestion that he really not let Sarah dress him, because <laughs> for some reason he goes from grease monkey to wearing leather pants and. I shit you not hear a fucking belly shirt. This is typical. Yeah. This is, with, this is uh, typical. With, you get involved with, with a woman, with, you have your own you have your own style, you have your own way of doing things, and there's a woman who's you know, there, there's a woman right there to try to change you. And and I'm making a joke here, but when you think about the way she's portrayed, she's still stuck on Draven, and so she has an opportunity to work with this guy, and she's like, I'm gonna turn you into Eric. Well, there just there is no fucking reason for it, though. There there is no other fucking reason for that. Just the fact that all of a sudden 
he adopts this new ridiculous personality, which, by the way, I'm sorry, what, did you try to get Bronson Pinchot and he turned you down? <laughs> um, just, just, because he, just because he decides to don some ridiculous-looking leather gear. So instead, just, you know, just personality changes because reasons. Look, the clothes in the original were not an essential part of who the character necessarily was. They were a reflection of it, but, you know, it's, it's not like what happens when Hal Jordan recites the Green Lantern Oath. <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's, not the way, that's not the way it fucking works. It's not that he gets the power from wearing black clothes, you stupid chuckleheads. Um, because, because, because for that matter, he sounds somehow even less sinister than Eric than Eric Draven does. It sounds like Goth Balky Bartakamus. Yes. Oh, you're ridiculous. Yeah, I, let me uh, let me add this, and then we got to move on. When she, I, I can look. I'm not as hard on the motivation to to dress him up as Sean is. I get where the character is coming from. You, can, you know, criticize him. That's fine. You think it's stupid, but. Uh, she they, they wrote her as still stuck on Eric, and when she starts having the dreams and everything, she comes intimately connected to this guy, and she ha- takes this opportunity to recreate Eric, um, including painting the guy's face up. Unfortunately, it's a bit awkward. The, the whole sequence, I mean, you know, here's a guy who just crawled out of his box, as I said earlier, uh, or this one crawled out of the river, um, is trying to figure out why he's still alive and what's happening to him and all of this. And then here's his broad all over him like a cheap suit, rubbing paint on his face. Like, look, you know, look, the, the one true, look, the one true, honest to God moment is when he runs away from her. <laughs> what are you doing to me? Look, folks, I'm sorry, but you know, could be real, and quite frankly, this goes for any woman who decides that she wants to redress her man to look the way her ex or some or somebody else looks. Folks, I'm sorry, but sticking a butt plug with a foxtail attached to it up somebody's ass doesn't give you a right to call him tails. That doesn't make it fucking so. <laughs> it doesn't. So, it doesn't. Goddamn! It doesn't goddamn work. And it's and I got to admit, watching watching Perez here try, try just totally ineptly to to ape Brandon Lee is just ultimately sad and hilarious. Because yeah, literally there were times where I where I just wanted him to say, "You're trying to kill me? Don't be ridiculous, cousin." You know why I'm here. Because sometimes the world looks perfect. Nothing to rearrange. the big bad here. Um, Richard Brooks is Judah Earl. And I want to bring this up. I want to talk about him and and Iggy, and then I think we need to call it a night. Um, But I I want to talk about him because, like, in the first one, the only reason in terms of, you know, the internal story that you deal with Top Dollar is Draven's Draven's a threat to his control over... Uh, over Detroit, he, uh, Top Dollar must seem um, 
Muslim in total control, have total power. There must not be any threats. If there's a crack in the armor, the whole thing falls apart. So that's top dollar. And you get what he's all about. He's making sure that things are that the trains are running on time and the empire is running smoothly, um, and that's it. There's nothing really. There's no more to it than that. And it didn't have to be any more to it than that. And this one, they introduce uh, Judah Earl as this head of a drug empire, and then there's this thread of a plot, and I and, and I and I almost hate to call it a plot because it goes no, it just goes absolutely nowhere. There's a whole scene where they introduce him. And they've got the one drug dealer there, and it says, hey, your last batch of whatever the fuck this is, I guess, I don't know if it's heroin or what, but your last batch of drugs is killing people. And then he goes on to make a really salient point. You don't want this batch out there. If you kill your customers, you won't have any left to buy the drugs. So I got rid of the batch. All right, so far I'm with the drug dealer. (laughs) That makes sense to me. And then you have Brooks who gets pissed that he destroyed an entire batch of killer drugs and proceeds to kill the guy. And I get that the scene is supposed to show you, oh, look, he's brutal and non-caring and he's, you know, evil McBad guy. Okay, fine. There was a zillion ways you could have done that and gotten to the same place. Instead, you have this total, totally illogical subplot involving drugs that are killing people. And the only time it'll come back up again in this movie is when is when uh, Ash Corvin, um, you know, Broody McCock topic, <laughs> finds a girl in an alley somewhere and says, "Don't do drugs, kid. I'm McGruff the crime dog." And then you'll never see it again. Someone explain to me what the point of all this was. Stand tall, kids, on the wings of your dreams. I mean, Ben, you got anything? Oh, don't look at me for an explanation on that one. Um, I have so very little to say about uh, the main villain in this uh, in this movie. You know, in the original, I can I can probably recite for you just about every line that Michael Wincott had in the original movie. He was that memorable. Um, I. I've seen uh, the Crow City of Angels at least three or four times. Um, don't ask me why, but I have. Um, and I still can barely remember anything about Judah Earl besides the fact that he steals the Crow powers and he still kind of gets his ass kicked. They don't goddamn work that way. Yeah, he went full-on WWE heel by the end of that movie. No, 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 no. I mean, the goddamn fucking crow powers don't begin to work in, in almost any way resembling what this movie thinks they do. I mean, granted, yeah. yes, I know, I know fictional characters, but over the course of this movie, that I can recall right off the top of my head, I witnessed, I, I witnessed either Balky's, I'm sorry, he's Balky to me, or the goddamn bird itself light a row of palm trees on fire to the to the tune to the tune of blessed fuck knows why but Rob Zombie doing a cover of Boogeyman. Was that Rob Zombie? I, I'm pretty yeah. sure that was Rob yeah, Zombie. Zombie. That's not... Zombie, I, I'm your boogeyman. 
Oh yeah, it was okay. It was white. It was white zombie, which is somehow even worse because I'll take white zombie over solo Rob any day. Um, real, real quick, by the way, real quick. I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but this, I'll make this quick. That is not the last association that Rob Zombie is going to have with the Crow franchise, and I will bring that up later. <laughs> Rob, you fucking fuck. I want to like you. I really do. Uh, but the, the goddamn you... bird, the goddamn bird lights shit on fire. Okay, I don't remember pyrokinesis either in the comic or the movie. <laughs> um, light shit on fire. Um, you have you have Perez at one point in arguably what might be the most ridiculous goddamn scene in the movie, making an absolute mockery of one of the most poignant moments of the climax of the first movie by going straight up Bioshock Infinite and launching crows pretty much pretty much from his nether hole to deliver pain unto unto Judah in one of the most ridiculous fucking looking things in the entire movie and that is saying a goddamn lot just it doesn't begin to work this way and and again, it, it's Goyer taking what was a pretty simple, symbolic, poignant concept and just saying, fuck that, I can totally do better. It's like he took the graphic novel and drew dicks all over it. <laughs> no, that's, basically, that's, ba- that's, basically what, that's basically what he did because that, that, that sums up Goyer so well. That sums up what so many of his problems are is – Blank doesn't work that way, and he doesn't care. It's the same way throughout the entire movie. He is just a glimmering middle finger of an example of the fact that Hollywood does not care that it has no idea how to write subcultures with any honesty whatsoever. Because, again, short of the aforementioned stereotypical dipshit high school goth kids, um, you will not find a more laughably d- ridiculous depiction of punks and goths than what he de- than what he portrays in this movie. Just a right. bunch of a bunch of people for who even for one of the most theatrical subcultures in the world, which is just rife with hyperbole. You would even look at would even probably still look at this and just go, or at least the adults would go. Who in God's name talks that way? And it's it's the same with the drug dealers. For some reason, there's this idea that dealing drugs implies insane. Yeah, implies basically mass murder in the making. I've I, I talked to many drug dealers over the course of my day. Most of them are quite boring people. Well, they yeah. Well, you know what? And you know what? Being the son of a former of a former undercover narcotics officer, and kind of having you know heard some of his honest statements about what he about what he's learned about drug dealers and the drug and the drug trade, you cannot be that murderously few nuggets shy of a happy meal unhinged and probably last that long. Nor could you probably do so being being surrounded by so many monkey cocks as as this 
as this guy is. And unfortunately, yes, despite the fact that it is her final performance before her untimely 2001 death, I have to include Miss Former Yellow Ranger in that because I'm sorry, that was one gi- that was one giant tiger's giant saber tooth tiger zord punch to my childhood's baby maker. <laughs> That we are, I'm sorry. We are I, over I, I never, time here. We, we are over time. Um, I didn't have an opportunity to tell people who, if anyone was listening uh, live, that we are uh, we are into overtime, and so I'm not going to go ahead and make an announcement about it now because if you're listening to this, you are listening to this in the archives. So, mm-hmm. with that being said, um, I, I do want to start to take us toward the to the end of this discussion and see. Ben, you didn't think we were going to need only you know two hours just to discuss the first two movies. See, if we had tried to cram all four into this, they never would have worked. Um, let, let's sure. talk about Iggy. <laughs> Iggy Pop is the shining star of this entire thing because the plot sucks. Uh, the performances from the other actors pretty much suck across the board. Um, Iggy Pop is the is the one that gives at least an interesting performance. Uh, he he kind of he when he wa- when he's on screen he's kind of chewing scenery he's you know all over the place he's sort of exciting to watch you know uh, again against everybody else who's either playing a mannequin or can't act at all uh, but other than that I mean he, you know it's like all right Iggy play a completely despicable human being all right you know and here's some crazy dialogue all right. And that's and that's kind of all there is to his character. Uh, hey, Iggy, Iggy, bastardize a line from X Men: The Arcade Game. All right, <laughs> Ben. Um, yeah, it, it was it was definitely uh, you know more entertaining than some of the other uh, some of the other henchmen that got uh, dispatched. But that was really just because most of them were so bland by comparison. I think. Oh, are, are you trying to are you trying to tell me that you found Iggy Pop more entertaining than Skank? Well, I'm not talking about in the I'm not talking about the original. I'm talking about compared I, to. I, 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 I was gonna, I was gonna say, Mister. I feel like we should videotape this and just play back in slow motion. Oh, that was brilliant! No, no, <laughs> that was. I laugh every time at that. Um, I, I laugh. I laugh every time at that, and I got an impression for you. Call, call, bang, fuck, call, I'm bang, dead. fuck, I'm dead. Yes. <laughs> that, you know what? I, I swear, I hope that Michael Wincott has enough of a sense of humor to take this into consideration. That needs to be his epitaph. <laughs> oh, man. Um, one thing. A <laughs> uh, quick bit of... Uh, Quick bit of uh, trivia, just because, you know, I have to continue to bring comic book stuff into this. Um... I would I would imagine at some point it got back to Iggy Pop that um, when James O'Barr actually was creating the crow and, and designing him for the comic, um, mm-hmm. a lot of the crows, a lot of Eric's original like physique in the comics is based a lot on uh, Iggy Pop, and um, who James of whom James O'Barr was a big fan. So I guess uh, you know it's possible that it got back to him and uh, decided he wanted to be. Uh, in, in, in a Crow movie, unfortunately, he was one Crow movie too late. Uh, it would have been. I, I think he'd. Have, I think he'd have been right at home alongside like some of the some of the other like you know the the colorful you know 
psychotic henchman in the in, you know in the original movie. That would have been that would have been nice. Here he's he's kind of out of place. Yeah, like that. That's the that role would, he should have. Yeah, I could I could totally see that. Here, you know, he stands out kind of by default um, because you know he's he's you know he, he's the only one that seems to be trying. Uh, not that you know I, I have mixed feelings about homicidal dominatrix Three Trang, um, but uh, yeah, mixed you know, feelings about topless Three Trang. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah. Um, that was awesome. Um, yeah, well. All right, I'm not, I have nothing to say about Thomas Jane and the Peep Show. I just other than poor Thomas Jane. I didn't oh, realize God, that I, was Thomas Jane. No, I I, forget, I forgot while I was watching it that that was that that was him. Which, in my opinion, also goes to show that he is a seriously underrated actor. <laughs> so definitely like, underrated. So our next two movies, we've got The Crow Salvation and The Crow Wicked Prayer, which I haven't even seen these two movies yet. Uh, part of the do I, do either of them involve do either of them involve somebody masturbating so furiously that he loses all of his motor skills? <laughs> no, but it, but what but the first one, Salvation features Kirsten Dunst and Fred Ward. You know, <laughs> like, see, you mentioned that something like that. David Boreanaz was in Wicked Prayer. I bet he could have made it work. Uh, and the cast of Wicked Prayer. See, this is why, like, you know, Ben and I were talking about this offline. It's like, oh, geez, we're not going to talk about all four movies. Are we going to, you know, I don't know if it's going to be anything to say. I have plenty to say, and I haven't even seen the movie yet. Check, check out the fucking cast on Wicked Prayer. Yeah. Oh, you're going to have. Wait, 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 wait. Tito Ortiz. Tito fucking Ortiz. Dennis yeah. And Wayne Trayer. When you oh, get got, to Topper, uh, when you get to Topper, you'll have plenty to say. Trust me. Oh, uh, I would, I would go kind of one step in the same direction, and point out that in the movie we just got done discussing, uh, number one, John Bon Jovi actually had an interest in uh, playing the part of uh, of uh, Ash Corbin. Um, I know in, at least one friend that would have loved that. <laughs> Um, and, and, um, we almost didn't get Mia Kirshner as suddenly grown up and boring Sarah. We almost got Tori Amos. Well, correction, almost is stretching it in terms of the, in terms of they offered it to her and Tori, like a good cornflake girl, I'm sorry, that's right, she said it never was a cornflake girl. Bad joke, bad joke on my part, abort. Um, um, like the wife. I earned that. Yeah, go ahead. I earned that. I've I've made my flubs before. Um, hell, I mean that's. Give me a break. That's not as bad as the time I accidentally made, accidentally made a joke about a woman who had a medical emergency involving her breast implants. Um, but uh, they offered her the role, but Tori, wise woman that she is, turned it down. Which yes. I don't know. Part of me would be interested in, in what um in what mid nineties Tory before all the before all the um 
um, kind of excessive plastic surgery could have brought to the role. But on the other hand, I'm also glad that she had nothing to do with this fucking turd either. I would call that, as the movie's concerned, I'd call that dodging one bullet and jumping in front of a firing squad. True. All right. True. Walter, yeah. Walton Doggins is also in uh, Salvation. I Jesus Christ, they really got some interesting character, uh, actors for these terrible movies. Um, yeah, Eric Mabius and Dennis Hopper, too. Yeah. Oh, you already mentioned right. Dennis Hopper, didn't you? For some reason, when you did, my mind registered as you were trying to say that John Popper was in one of these movies. That'll be the group like, five. Blues Traveler soundtrack, sweet. Like <laughs> <laughs> now, now I want now I want to see a a country a a country inspired crow. You know, instead of being all black, he's got like a fucking straw hat. You know, overall second shirt. Uh, with our luck, they'd recast um, fucking Taylor Swift or Carrie Underwood as Sarah. I hope. Uh, um, the bluegrass crow would be fantastic. I've seen a house fly. In any case, so <laughs> this has been your long road to ruin. First two crow movies. We will be back in two weeks uh, on on our regular scheduled Thursday. That is, um, let's see what day is this? Uh, yeah, come on, calendar. All right, yeah, that'll be the 16th. Uh, on the 9th, uh, Metal Hammer of Doom will be looking at the new Nightwish album. So go ahead and check that out. It'll be either a 10 o'clock or 10.30 start time. And then, like I said, we'll all be back here on the 16th. And then we're going to be off for a few weeks. Um, Sean and I will both be seeing the premiere of The Avengers uh, on the 30th, so we will not be available to do the show. And on the 29th, um, there's a reason. Oh, it's... There's a reason why we can't do another 29. So, um, that look at my calendar. So we're going to be off for a few weeks. We'll be back the we'll be back the week after, um, and uh, well, around that time we'll be looking at the Iron Man trilogy. So uh, mm-hmm. check that out. Um, also, next Wednesday the eighth, uh, Robert Winfrey and I will be reviewing the new Furious Seven movie starring The Rock, Vin Diesel, and Ronda Rousey. It'll be fantastic. Uh, Benjamin, what you got going on? Okay, I'll run through these as fast as I can. First of all, uh, you know, thanks uh, for having me. Thank you for actually postponing this episode so that I can be on it. Um, rest assured, my dental-related medical issues are pretty much resolved, and I am now Woo-hoo. free to focus. On my, I am now free to focus on my crippling emotional pain. Um, but not to worry, because it so happens I know a good social worker. Uh, <laughs> So, so you're coming, so, yeah. Right? What's that? You're coming back in two weeks, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Good. I, I you're leaving us just... high and dry. But like hell, you're leaving us high and dry with two sequels to go. You are on this train with us to the end, son. Hey, I've already, I've already seen them. Like, I decided there was no way in hell that like the last Crow movie that I was going to see before I did this show was going to be the worst one. Which is you know which is wicked prayer, or I thought it was going to be the worst one. I'll get into that next uh, next time. But I watched these in reverse, so boy, I sat through Hellraiser Revelations four fucking total times. You can make it through the Crow sequel twice more. 
I may, I may hit you up to watch that with you at some point if you got two hours free. So. Oh God, we what what Hellraiser Revelations? No, hell um, no. I was gonna say uh, why? No, uh, the, it, we'll we'll talk later. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I got I got some plugs to do. Uh, I. I as always I write, draw, self publish a comic called Soul Soul Exodus. You can find it on my website, soulxo dot com, S O U L E X O dot com, Facebook dot com slash soulxo. I'm on Twitter, uh at SoulXO Comic. I do sketchbook Saturday every Saturday. I'm wrapping up uh several weeks and months of classic monsters, uh and I'm going out with a bang this weekend. Um some friends of mine that I want to plug real quick uh, that I also do artwork with and for. Uh, my friends at Made a Fail podcast, madeafail.net. They should have a new episode coming out very soon. Uh, please show them some love. Uh, another friend of mine and collaborator, L. Anna Lenz, uh, she has a book uh, coming out called The uh, She has a book out called The Opry Legacy. Uh, she has. Uh, a comic book series called Wretched Creatures. You can find it at wretchedcreaturescomic.tumblr.com and on Twitter at uh, the underscore Apocalypse. Uh, another friend, colleague, associate of mine, Louis Lovehog, a.k.a. Linkara. Uh, check him out mm-hmm. at atopthefourthwall.com. Uh, um, I am still, as far as I know, the artist for a comic book series called Revolution of the Mask. Uh we will be – I have news on something related, not exactly to that, but uh, I will have something to talk about very soon in regards to myself and uh, Mr. Lewis Lovehart. Um, I will be exhibiting at East Coast Comic Con April 11th and 12th at the Meadowlands Expo Center in uh, New Jersey. Uh this is uh, Stone's Throwaway from MetLife Stadium, which is the site of the infamous WrestleMania 29, which, to my eternal shame, I was in attendance for. <laughs> uh, That's okay. I was at 28. You got you got the good one. Trust me. I wish I was at 28. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I will be on source material here at the Rattlers and Broadcasting Network next Monday at 10.30 Eastern with Jesse Starcher. We will be talking about Spawn number one and probably more than a little bit of uh, gushing over Todd McFarlane, who is a huge uh, influence on me as well, as you know, in the same way that uh, James O'Barr was with The Crow. And... Uh, I think that's uh, about all I got, except, you know, you can find me here at uh, Long Road to Ruin. This is actually, uh, it's been actually a little bit over a year. Um, and this is my, this Crow title card is actually my 20th. Um, mm-hmm. It's a pretty fitting, you know, anniversary. So it's been great, and I, uh, I enjoy working with you guys, and I hope to continue to do so. And I got, I'm working on ideas for Iron Man already. I, uh, yeah. I, enjoy your, I enjoy your talk. I actually get very anxious about when you when a new one is due, what you're going to do with it, what your take on it's going to be, and uh, you haven't you have not failed to, at the very least, entertain. Most often, impress me. Um, that, you know, 
I have the Dark Knight, the uh, animated series, and Transformers hanging up in my house. We don't have a frame big enough yet for the uh, um, for the Evil Dead, but I love them. Um, I love it when you incorporate my family into them. Um, you know, various <laughs> people associated with the show. So I always look forward to to the new title card. Um, so for your benefit, again, we have got one more Crow episode, and then Iron Man. And then um, I think I want to get I want to get Darkman back into the uh, the mix. But what might end up happening actually now that I'm thinking about it is I think Fury Road comes out May 15th, which means that the show after Iron Man is going to end up being um, yep May 15th. The show after Iron Man is going to end up having to be Mad Max. So good, good uh, keep that in mind. Oh yeah, <laughs> delayed Darkman delayed. Yeah, that that and uh, the Tom Clancy uh, movies. Sean, what do you got going on? Uh, you know what? I've got a few things in the works, but I'm kind of I'm so mired in work right now that I'm not going to even announce them here or when they're gonna or when they're gonna be done. I am just going to say that I'll be announcing them on future editions of Long Road to Ruin. So I'm gonna kind of take a page out of Ben's book and kind of dole out a few kudos thoughts ramblings, plugs, etc. for a few other people. First off, uh, yes, Ben, thanks, thank you for being on board for the past year. Uh, you came on after hearing me kind of send out feelers for a title card artist during the Hellraiser podcast, and I have been nothing but amazed every single, every, every single card you've ever done uh, with how you captured myself, Mark, how you've essentially made us characters, uh, how you go to you, you pay the attention to detail in every card of making sure that whoever it is I'm being meant to portray, you always make sure you put the N7 logo on there, somewhere or other. Uh, so you you are truly a, you're truly a credit to the show, an asset to the show, but more importantly, uh, you have also become an absolutely fantastic friend. Thank you for listening in this afternoon while for two hours I rambled on Facebook Messenger as I kind of gave my stream of consciousness thoughts on City of Angels as I watched it. Uh, it's it's a joy hearing from you. Uh, always, always is. And you are welcome at any time there's a show you want to discuss. Um, that being said... Uh, we got a plug that we actually forgot to dish out during the Cinderella episode last week. Uh, we cut off a little bit before we had a chance to let uh, my good my good friend and ex Alexis Haina uh, plug her wonderful jewelry. Go visit HoneysuckleRoseCreations.com right now. She specializes in 100% upcycled original jewelry. Um, much of it, if you happen to catch her at conventions, uh, exclusively at those live events, is tribu- attributed to various popular fandoms, from Game of Thrones to My Little Pony. No, I am not even remotely kidding. The prices are great, and in fact, I happen to have her have one of her Green Lantern Corps pins uh, currently adorning the lapel of my N7 hoodie. So go there again. That's Honeysuckle Rose Creations, and you can also find her on both Store Envy and Etsy. Uh, other various kudos to go out. Um, 
congratulations to my longtime great friend Allison Pregler uh, since leaving Channel Awesome. Uh, she has now apparently been given a very, I'm going to describe it, awesome sounds so, sounds so cliche, uh, a real plum gig working with About.com as they rebrand and revamp their, their website um, on a page devoted to uh, movies, just kind of all kind of mostly cult movies, but sort of all across that spectrum. So, by all means, I uh, hit her up on the on the Twitters, the Facebooks, the Tumblers, the face, uh, just anywhere social things can be found, and send her your send her your kudos. Especially go over to Phalus.com and check out her revamped show, Movie Nights which occasionally features the good Mr. Phelan Porteous dropping by himself, especially recently when they reviewed all three Thunder in Paradise movies. Um, let's see. Elsewhere, oh, today being April Fool's Day for a few more hours yet, uh, if you want to see what a $90,000 gag played on Indiegogo supporters looks like, uh, go over to Channel Awesome and check out the debut episode of their game show, which has been three years in the making. Uh, yeah, that's right. That one episode started shooting back when Brad Jones was still married. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, caught a little bit yeah, of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, trust me, folks, if, if you need to just kind of slow things down for a little bit, if you need to feel like you have your own own personal time turner around your neck, go watch that. It's 31 minutes that I guarantee you feels like 90. Um, and again, just sit there just sit there and marvel. This was six figures that people paid to get this one episode. Hope it was worth it, guys. <laughs> um, let's see, let's see, let's see. I was sitting here thinking, and I had about a half dozen other things. Um uh, Elsewhere, as far as people I immediately know, that's about all I've got. Uh, keep tuning in. Thank you to each and every one of you who listens live every week. Thank you to everybody who downloads. Thank you to everybody who visits the Facebook page. And it's it's been a hell of a ride of a two and a half years, coming up on three years. And this has been arguably the most fun I think I've had since I've been back. So... Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, everybody. Never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Right. Real quick, um, there's a new episode of the Casual Heroes, WrestleCast. Brock's going to kill everybody. We talked about WrestleMania. We talked about the Raw after that. talked about we, we played the Casual Heroes wild speculation game as to why there was a picture of Scott Steiner up at the Hall of Fame and what it all means. Uh, and, of course, various other tasteless jokes uh, that are part of that show. So go ahead and check that out on thecasualheroes.com. For Benjamin Colon and for Sean Comer, I'm your mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified. This is After the Flesh. I am the new way to go. I am the way of the future. 